Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm Richard Briette. I'll be your host today. And today I'm welcoming Lene Austad. She is a PhD and research fellow in philosophy at the University of Oslo and affiliated with the Center for Studies of the Holocaust and Religious Minorities in Oslo. Currently, She currently resides in the UK, pursuing long-standing interest in British psychoanalysis. Working at the interface of psychoanalytic thinking, ethics, and political theory, her writing has focused on the themes of emotions, Prejudice and Minority Rights. Her books include what we're going to talk about today, Respect, Plurality, and Prejudice, a Psychoanalytical and Philosophical Inquiry into the Dynamics of Social Exclusion and Discrimination. That is today today's book, and that was um, published in 2015 by Karnak. She's also published um, Nationalism and the Body Politic, Psychoanalysis and the Rise of Ethnocentrism and Xenophobia, that's 2014, Karnak. Did you edit that one? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I did. Yeah. And another one is Psychoanalysis and Politics, Exclusion and the Politics of Representation. That's 2012, also, also from Karnak. And then Action, Freedom, Humanity, Encounters with Hannah Arendt. That's still in Norwegian, I believe. What year was that? Um, so 2011, okay. yeah. Yeah, All right. I am yeah. almost done with your introduction. <laughs> Lene also founded and co-directs the interdisciplinary conference series called Psychoanalysis and Politics, which aims to address how crucial contemporary political issues may be fruitfully analyzed through psychoanalytic theory and vice versa, how political phenomena may reflect back on psychoanalytic thinking. Lene, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, you know, I'd like to start with um, our traditional question, um, which is, um, what brought you to write this book? What was the process and the motivation that got you to write this? Yeah, I think actually that many different things, really. So it's hard to pin it all down. Sure. Um, but um, I was even sort of from I was little, taking an interest in how a classmate at school could just... Um, take sides so everyone's takes sides with this person against the other person um based on no no evidence about what, what the situation is mm-hmm. this group phenomena where everyone is totally convinced that this thing is right and the other thing is wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> based on very little evidence mm-hmm. and uh and i think sort of more generally an interest in tracking sort of phenomena of small-scale implicit interactions that are part of uh, discrimination, mm-hmm. and then how it's legitimate or, or not legitimate is it to criticise, but based on sort of non-verbal cues mm-hmm. or so. So in a way, the social standards for what you can criticize and bring up to the discussion of what you can't and what just mm-hmm. sort what of remains uh, implicit. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, yeah, and and then I think also like an interest in the Holocaust historically and third parties sort of declaring that they didn't know anything about what was happening and how that sort of has largely sort of passed or been accepted until I think only in the more recent years, at least in many European countries, there's been a critical debate on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, mm-hmm. conveniently we've all apparently moved on um, without really addressing it. Um, and obviously, you know, as I was reading the book, we are so surrounded or saturated by these issues of prejudice. I mean, just the headlines about the migrant crisis in Europe um, say yeah. a lot about what what you're working on this book. Yeah. So I also think really during the work, during the course of the work, it became much more apparent or more, more critical, some of these things, that you had more and more open expressions of xenophobia, of racism, this in various European countries at the same time, and all this yeah, anti-immigrant discourse sort of exploding. You know, yeah. Um, you know, one thing I want to say as we talk about the book, it, you know, uh, you know, I'd ask myself, how would I approach putting a book together about prejudice and psychoanalysis and philosophy? And as I read it, it struck me that you don't shrink from any challenge in this book. Every, you know, it, it, the, cur- the intellectual courage of this um, is really striking, that you really take on every question that comes up and, um, you know, address it, which I was really impressed with. I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, can you talk about the title? Because I think that's a really important way to start. Um, and the words um, respect, plurality, and prejudice. Why, why those words for the title? Yeah, I thought maybe some people would think it's a bit misleading in that, you know, I could say it's a book about prejudice, but mm. um, I thought I wanted to keep it. I thought it, with the word respect, it was important because. Yeah, to, to think in terms of, of, um, of prejudice as a denial of respect and also to have the, I think the word respect has got both the association to Kant and respect for human dignity and also to the Black Power movement more recently. Mm-hmm. And also the word plurality is sort of referring to Hannah Arendt where this is a central concept to her as humans being, as always being plural and argues that has been overlooked in most philosophy. Mm-hmm. But they're treated like just um, there's one more and another and another and they're just essentially the same and... Uh, she also emphasizes the importance of plurality for human dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, it seems to me the book, it, just to put it simply, I guess, um, it takes the problem or the question of prejudice and uses a lot of lenses, a lot of resources to try to, I guess, understand it and the implications of it for us individually and socially. Would you say that's right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. So um, the thing that you start with, obviously, which um, is important, is um, this question about the individual and the social um, and how to um, sort of navigate um, between the two and how they reflect off each other. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about what that was like um, as you pursued this this project? Yes, I think uh, actually I probably started uh, thinking more traditionally somehow, and then I changed along the way. Somehow I realized that I have to be more critical of the use of psychoanalysis, or that the social mm-hmm. has to be more critically reflected on because. Um, this is a way uh, you can put the problem if you speak of applied psychoanalysis. Right. Is that the, there's a way of doing it, which is to take something ready-made and just apply it onto something else, just put it onto the social, and then so psychoanalysis is the master discourse, so to say, that you you stand outside of something and you just analyze it. And implicit in that is that you think you've got a perfect grasp of it, or mm-hmm. that you're also to say objective and neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so what I'm doing, emphasizing in the first chapter, I think, is uh, stress on how you never can be outside of it and objective and neutral, and you're you're in the middle of some specific social situation and affected by all of that, and how. How do you need to change your thinking to try and incorporate it, reflect on it? Yeah, and I I really um, welcome that, and I think it's really important. And you know, this isn't just um, a sort of comprehensive review of applied psychoanalysis or texts about prejudice. You really analyze and I think bring current um, all of these approaches. Um, but this point about not being neutral. I really appreciate it because it's such a, a factor for psychoanalysis, um, this assumption of a kind of neutrality. You, you say, um, in many psychoanalytically informed social analyses, it appears as if the idea of the ideally analyzed analyst as an embodiment of perfect neutrality is not a theoretical fiction, but the reality. And I think that's a fantasy that we often fall into. Yeah, and, and you could say... That perhaps it's already problematic in a clinical situation, but at least when you're faced with more clearly social phenomena than than any analyst or any other would reflect certain very specific cultural um, etc. positions that mm-hmm. never can be. <laughs> right. Um, um, let me ask. So yeah. The 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 um. Hans George Gadamer seems to play an important part in this approach that you take about your questioning of neutrality and prejudice. Can you talk a little bit about how Gadamer played a role in your book? Um, yeah. Um, in a way, because I didn't actually have him in sort of <laughs> in mind most of the time, but he, he's there in the background somehow. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's affected. You've got the dis, uh, you know, the debate in psychoanalysis whether to view it mainly as natural science or as uh, interpretation that's more aligned with the humanities and social sciences, mm-hmm. um, which I'm uh, sort of more on that side. So. Um, I think that the centrality of Gardner is he stresses the importance of um, or situatedness that we always occupy one specific position so socially, historically, uh, and we view things from that perspective on the background of all specific 
traditional social norms. And so the epistemic aim would be both to, to grasp that, to realize that, and to see, so to some extent, be able to maybe overcome it isn't the best word, but um, <laughs> expand one's horizon by encountering other positions and see how those are other. I guess it involves a kind of, yeah. a kind of, humility um, as one proceeds. Okay, well, let's, so you, you take on the question of um, subjectivity and absence um, in the first chapter. Um, do you think you could tell us a little bit about your approach to the first chapter and sort of how it sets the stage for the rest of the book? Yeah, yeah, because I use the phrase with subjectivity because it was often, you know, said about psychosocial studies, so those are studies of subjectivity. But I think here it's important to argue that it's not just about that, but it's about what's absent from subjectivity. And then, but both individually and socially, so if you think psychoanalytically, it's both the individual unconscious, but it's also what's socially unconscious. So I go on to emphasize that a lot of prejudice is just that it's um, unconscious or pre-conscious and therefore not acknowledged as such so trying to talk about a phenomenon that's most often hidden from view and then I um, make use of based on Ferenczi's confusion of tongues and Balint's um, Balint's piece on trauma and object relations as based on that. Right. Um, maybe yeah. we should talk about that for yeah. a sec. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I think it's, I, I found it really, really interesting and important. Um, and the idea is essentially, well, uh, that a, a child isn't in a position of experiencing trauma when their experience isn't reflected back by an adult. Is that right? Yes. So it makes a crucial point that the trauma itself, it, it's, uh, it's only is as complete as in the third phase when what happens is that it's denied. So the reality of the child's experience is denied. Um, so just to say, yeah, this never happened and you, you're imagining it and you're being hypersensitive and, uh, and it was your fault. So yeah, so that that completes the trauma as being a genuine trauma. First, you've got an intimate, trustful relationship, and then you've got a betrayal of the trust in sort of excessive overstimulation and rejection, mm-hmm. and then crucially in the third phase, it's denied that that ever happened, and the child is forced to identify with that reality too. Yeah. And you know, the, um, throughout the book, you bring uh, object relations um, theorists in at you know really crucial points. So there was this current of object relations thinking throughout the book, which you know I really um, appreciated. And so you, you know, the balance um, theory of trauma. And you do you go on to relate that to um, to Winnicott? I think that's in a later chapter. 
yeah, yeah, it's the, yeah, it's also in this chapter. Okay. Um, so essentially, the first chapter, you kind of make the argument for how the unconscious is a key element that can't be disregarded when talking about prejudice because of how prejudice yeah. works. Yeah. And also, uh, also emphasizing the importance of power relations in that. Mm-hmm. So, to argue that, um, say, a racist, etc., attack follows the same pattern in that after it happens, it's been denied, saying, no, no this wasn't really racist, or it was only a joke, or it was your fault, etc., etc. So, mm-hmm. um, so on the social level, you've got what is unconscious, and you've got power structures in. Um, in deciding what is socially unconscious, to say well, what isn't illuminated, and what isn't discussed and talked about, what, what doesn't count as real, sort of socially. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to raise a lot of questions um, later on regarding if there is a social unconscious, what is our individual responsibility if we're within that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a... It's a difficult question. I tried to say something better in the last chapter. Yeah, of course. You, knowing you, you don't shrink from that incredibly intimidating question and take it on fully, which is great. Um, let's go to chapter two, and which I not only, again, you you start talking in a lot of detail about primary process. Lot it's called the chapter is called primary process logic and prejudice. So you do this really thorough and. Um, um, exploration of theories of the unconscious and primary process logic um, and then really bring home how important these theories are in terms of understanding prejudice um, so you know what are the what are the primary points of how the unconscious and prejudice sort of connect what would you say um well, well, I'm arguing that prejudice is sort of governed by primary process logic. So, mm-hmm. so as a parallel to what Freud analyzes in his book on dreams, so that prejudices, whether they're, I mean, they can be conscious or pre-conscious or unconscious, but that regardless, they would contain elements of primary process logic as sort of signals as the unconscious is active. Mm-hmm. In prejudices, and um, yeah. What? So, you you talk, you do a, a, a really um, extensive reading of the dream of Arma's injection. Um, how does that sort of illustrate this? The way that prejudice is related to primary process logic. Could you talk about that? Um. Well. Um, but I suppose prejudice is not that explicit in that particular dream, but it um, it illustrates some of the processes whereby it's got one person becoming several people, or Irma standing for lots of different people, as is gradually unpacked, and Freud herself. So mostly I would go into that dream as um, it reveals and. Uh, exemplifies all these processes of condensation and displacement and reversal and reversal of effect and yeah, timelessness and mm-hmm. 
So as you got the theme of evasion of guilt running through it, it wasn't me, it was someone else. Mm -hmm. And so it, it gets to, um, you know, I think the, the, it seems like the, the, where racism as a notion is in, let's say, um, media is, um, essentially no one, almost no one says that they're a racist. Somehow it's happening, mm. but nobody mm. knows how or why, but don't look at me. It's not me. No, it's always someone else. Right. And I think that's that point about the dream of Irma's injection. It's how it's always someone else that's responsible or to blame, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Let's tell you. And also the process of several people, distinct people, becoming represented as one. This is one of the distinct. So you could, you could think of, sort of, because one form of dehumanization, which would be more more obvious in a way, is to think that like people say, you, you're like you're a rat or an insect or you're like a disease, etc. Mm-hmm. But another form is more to do with making invisible or representing individuals as only... Um, only a category, or so, so as not as individuals as all, so as sort of um, masses, collective units. Right, and I, I, um, I think yeah. a good example of that would be the, you know, the migrant crisis. Yeah, precisely. Mm. I mean, at least in the media here, some people are saying it wasn't until the body, there's terrible uh, photos of this three-year-old girl's body being carried out of the water. People are saying it wasn't until then that this was considered, I don't know, a human issue in a way. Hmm. Yeah, which is very striking. Hmm. Um, and it was a, a, a detail, it was the issue of use of words, because it was sort of journalists being criticized for saying migrants rather than refugees. Mm-hmm. What's to do with, you know, legitimacy? Uh, and I got the response that you know, because we don't know whether the you know whether their claim is legitimate or not, we get to refer to them as migrants rather. Right. And we'll, I mean, so you definitely get into that in the chapter on speech. I mean, I, I guess the point being that if you say refugee, it's an actual legal term is one of the elements of that. Mm. Um. Um. Okay, well, let's let's yeah. go to. Um, the third chapter um, on its contagion, conflict, and ambivalence. Prejudice as a transfer of shame and guilt. Can you um, can you give us a sense of what you try to do in that chapter? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Um, in a way, I'm continuing from the last chapter mm-hmm. about primary process and to sort of to trace. Um, transfer of shame and guilt socially in prejudice as incidents of magical thinking, you know, putting onto others um, painful and difficult emotions, and in in socially determined patterns. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's this idea of contagion. Yes, make use of um, Freud's notion of mana in Totem and Taboo. 
Can you talk about that a little? Um, yeah. Um, so, so he discusses that there's two forms of, you could say, sort of touching or closeness, as it was sort of physical closeness, um, where the idea is sort of magic is being transmitted just by the, the physicality. Uh, as an example, where the, the chief mustn't breathe on the fire because his power is transmitted to the fire and then to the meat that's cooked on the fire. And then everyone who then eats that meat became deceased with it because of the chief, the spirit of the chief is so powerful. The so uh, mm, transmission by sort of means of physical contact. And another one to do with um, contact between ideas, which could be by means of words being similar. So besides also examples of um, uh, taboos on mentioning the name of dead people fearing that they, they might come back and take revenge. And um, so, and of course, it's important to Freud that these are ideas such as these persist in our society as well, that we never wholly rid ourselves of patterns of magical thinking, really. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> You, you you get to the idea that um, the other the other is an agent carrying something, but also a sufferer. Um, yeah. But there's this ambivalence about whether it's one or the other. I think, right? Yeah, and I th in a way that's. Um Centered, sort of I'm trying to explore the boundary between what you think is a moral argument and moral qualities and non-moral qualities, such as disease, say, that in a lot of these sort of prejudice ideations that these are not wholly separate at all, that these merge into each other. And... Um, Because you also find prejudice discourse in the shape of moral arguments, <laughs> whereas they're also infused with magical thinking. Right. So, um... I mean, I think in the States, with the current um, presidential campaign uh, discourses, there is a lot of talk about, you know... Immigrants and building a wall to protect, you know, the country from this invading horde and oh, yeah. the idea yeah. that they're going to take jobs. Um, it oh. as I was reading this, your book, it was really, sadly, I guess, not difficult at all to see a lot of examples of how each of these elements plays out um, today. Yeah. So I also thought, and back to that, that's the reason also for thinking of this as a general theme. I think the large extent of historical continuity, really, with some variation. So, which is very sad, of course. Uh, um, well, let's. Um, I, I want to move on to um, the next chapter, which is, you know, again. Not shrinking from a challenge, you um, take on the question of hate speech and speech. Um, 
and also the notion about legality and whether it's possible to, um, I suppose, what would be the question, censoring it? Yeah, oh, yeah, but yeah, but in a way, I try to bring the debates beyond that. In a way, to to not just argue for and against censorship, because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you bring it beyond that that uh, debate? What do you? Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's a bit about where this goes. And actually, it's got a concrete political background, really, from Muslim and Norwegian political debates after Breivik, mm-hmm. um, where, where it was framed, mostly by sort of right wing, but more broadly, that you, you've got freedom of speech, which is absolute, Just, and then um, you've got other concerns. Just for a second, yeah. you're, okay. you're, for background <laughs> for the listener, um, you're talking about the, um, the, um, the, the attack that occurred, right? Yes, in okay. Norway, the sort of terrorist attack on, yeah, on the government building was shooting mm-hmm. all the, mm. Okay, and it was a right wing, um, um, person that was, um, a big, uh, reader of a lot of, um, hate-related uh, literature, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry sort of to interrupt, and sort of influenced by what you call, well, Islamophobic, but what they call, mm-hmm. yeah, anti-jihad. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. So, was, um, but, uh, but I'm also concerned because after him, some of the views that were aligned with him became more mainstream, really. Mm-hmm. As a result, also I think as a result of this opening up, because it was argued that uh, we need to open up to, and have all these debates and let all the people who are sort of anti-immigration and or Islamophobic, we have to let them speak up so we can have a um, yeah rational <laughs> resolution. And then when you see the result that happened instead was that these views just became more and more mainstream and that were represented. Really. Um, so, yeah. I guess the question is, by having a discussion, you actually almost spread the ideology. Yeah. And so, what? What's your take on that? What? what how did you? T- how did you tackle this question? Well, I take it one bit of the argument. Let me continue with with that. I was arguing about human rights was that um, was that is mistaken to just frame the question as saying you got a you got a human right, which is freedom of speech, and then you got other concerns because if you read the Declaration of Human Rights, you see that you actually got um, equally the, the right to protection against discrimination. Which is also an absolute right. So you've got actually two, two fundamental rights standing against each other in this issue. Right. So it's you know far too easy to say you could just brush one of them aside. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond that, uh, well, I think so, some of what happened was that people in general became habituated to more racist speech in the press in general. Mm -hmm. And I think 
Så det betyder så... Because I, I found it a bit shocking because I had but then moved moved here and so talking to people here who sort of uh, I was a bit shocked at the level of it was sort of questioning whether they didn't react to it and they said that well then we've just become normal. So um whereas at the same time I think pe- people who would then try to speak against it would easily be silenced or harassed so much that they would pull away from, from public debate. So so I think it's more problem because the argument that you should just have lots of freedom of speech, it doesn't consider inequalities of power. Mm-hmm. And you know, you yeah. um I'm, I'm looking at the uh, passage here I underline. Um, you say, I argue in favor of a need to examine not only directly hateful and discriminatory utterances, but also the conceptual frames that, while in themselves seemingly innocent, lend support to hate speech. Yeah. Now, yeah. are you talking about when you say conceptual frames there lend support to hate speech? What, can you talk more about that? What are the conceptual frames? Um, yeah, if, for example, the word that immigrant, uh, someone being sort of labeled an immigrant even after many years of having lived in the country and learned the language and got the citizenship. You've got, even got use of the words of second generation immigrant, third generation immigrant. So, so practice of othering, but which isn't, of course, it doesn't explicitly, it doesn't count as hate speech. But so, so these things would be a question of what, what kind of people you would place in what kind of categories. And there would be an, you could say an ambiguity there in the background in that some words such as immigrant, it's not officially sort of a racist word or also linked with racism, but it's got um, ideational connotations. Mm-hmm. Okay, which, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's all over the place in the States. You know, you, 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 you learn a lot about somebody if they say the word illegals versus, yeah. you know, undocumented. Um, so I, I guess what you're arguing for is that we all sort of up our game in terms of being able to have a discussion about analyzing things like terms and words and the position that these words imply. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because, yeah, <laughs> sort, of, sort of social categories used in that way, of course, they become habitual and then noticeable to many people, but you could also, you could ask critical questions about those frameworks, you know, who, who are put within what frame. Um. You know, it's interesting because I'm trying to sort of play this out in my mind. Um, If you essentially point out that the word, say, illegal, as a a way of referring to a person, is dehumanizing, the person who uses the word illegal might say, oh, well, you're censoring me. Mm, yeah, precisely. Um, and also that I'm just asserting something objective. So, 
Yeah. Um, mm. So I kept hitting that wall as I thought about, you know, how to, how, and we'll get to this in the in later discussion, um, how to have a dialogue with a person that may be engaging in the kind of ideology of prejudice. Um, and, you know, apparently I'm innocent here because I don't do that. And I'm putting myself in the position of this, you know, person of goodwill trying to talk to a racist or however you want to put it. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I am, I listen to a lot of, um, you know, media and talk radio. And I, I guess as a psychoanalyst, I'm just, I love listening to people talk also. Um, but it's this, you hit a wall where yeah. you can tell someone that you're, you're dehumanizing another person and it's, there's a level of resistance that is almost, I, I would say clinical in a sense, like you, you know that you're working against a resistance. Mm. Yeah. So there is something, yeah. To, trying to show her so that it's not it's not quite like you know rational discourse or anything because there would be answers such as uh, well no I'm not dehumanizing or well, I don't care or I didn't say just that but something slightly different but I did mean that anyway she got all this kind of slippery discourse and right exactly changing some premises only slightly in order to go right back to where you were. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, so maybe Winnicott can help us on this uh, point. Um, and, you know, I, I should point out that you, I never knew when you were going to bring in some piece of culture, like um, you use uh, Jeanette Winterson at one point, um, Sophocles, and in Chapter 5 you use um, Fassbender and... Um, his 1974 film, Fear Eats the Soul. I think the American yeah. version of that title is Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Um, for the yeah, yeah, I like it, yeah. Okay. Um, but you talk about the concept of basic trust. Um, can you tell us how you, you relate that to um, social space and what you do in this chapter? Yeah, um, I suppose it started because I, I watched that film and was very struck by it. Mm. And I thought that what it does so brilliantly is to show social situations that are just so very ordinary and then to show them as not being ordinary at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so no, if, you, if you imagine that when you've got sort of basic trust is being used both a social context then there are a lot of social everyday interactions that you don't um, you don't notice because you would just you know, rely on them being there like when you says about Beijing trust that it's unnoticeable because you're being supported but you would think of that as just sort of a part of yourself part of what you take for granted so it's only if you're being being dropped or being you know, not as there's only a sort of striking absence of that basic trust that would be noticeable. Right. 
And that, that had me thinking about in American political discourse, the concept of white privilege. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that's again, one of the sort of electrifying elements of this chapter that you, these psychoanalytic concepts are so spot on relevant to these social discourses. And, you know, white privilege is essentially about having an uninterrupted basic trust at a social level, I think. Mm. Yes, that's well put. Yeah. Um, And so anyway, um, yeah, so I'm also trying to highlight that, that you know, then it was a problem with empathy because the difficulty of imagining that it could be otherwise. And so, um, what is? Yeah. Can can you sort of draw? Tell tell us more about that. Um, it's hard to empathize with someone who doesn't feel basic trust. Is that the? Yeah, that's my yeah starting point in a way because if you never experience that breach of it, you don't know what it is to feel that. Mm-hmm. So that others, let's say, given the concept of this film, the others around can't really imagine the situation of Ali. I should just for background for the listeners, um, Ali Fear Eats the Soul is about a. Um, it takes place, I guess, in a sort of working class setting in Germany, and I, I think it's in Berlin. Um, and yeah, I'm mute, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Well, what, can you tell us uh, the basic story of the film? I don't want to try to do it for you. Um, yeah, it's about um, Ali's um, a foreign worker uh, working as a mechanic, and in an opening scene, he meets Emmy, who's quite a, quite a bit older than him, in a bar, and they start to dance. And, and she she's, is um, white, right? Yeah, she's white, German, mm-hmm. and works as a cleaner, and then. Yeah, the, then the relationship starts between them, and they they get married, and um, everyone around them, practically everyone, sort of discriminates against them in every possible way, very harshly. Um, yeah, should I go on and tell the whole how the story develops? Well, I think you know. Go ahead. Sure. Well, well, because you've got a twist, sort of a turning point in the story where there's a point where Emmett says, oh, let's go away on holiday from all these horrible people. And when they come back, uh, you've got a turn where everyone is starting to invite her back in to be part of the community with her neighbours and friends and others, uh, while still excluding Ollie. Mm-hmm. So up until then, you had... To that point, you have sort of the two of them against the rest of the world. But now there's a complication in that Emmy's sort of loyalty is tested. Whether she she's partly drawn to sort of side with the others against Ali against so you got the so you got all the sort of complicated the racism of the surrounding relationship entering into their relationship as well. Yeah, you you yeah. you end up he becomes invisible in a sense, and you're not yeah. sure whether she is object, she starts objectifying him or whether she always did. And then there's the, the really strange references she keeps making to Hitler. This is Hitler's favorite restaurant. Yeah. I want to go to that restaurant, which is. Yes, yes, yes. Fassbender's is- weirdness. <laughs> um, mm. But the, the other piece in this chapter that you talk about is, um, 
true and false self. And there's really a question about, you know, is Ali in a state of being a false self? Would you say that that is accurate? Yeah, I would say because of the because of the pressure of the environment that is not that there is no social space that given to him where he can be it's a very true self can can live and breathe so to say perhaps with the exception of some of the scenes between just the two of them that we see in the beginning which seem very you know, genuine in contrast to yeah it's it's incredibly poignant and it is the fascinator is ruthless um Mm. you know, the way he uh, takes these questions on. Um, you know, I, we have a few minutes left and I knew it was really ambitious to try to take on the whole book, um, in this one show. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good that we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, we, said, we certainly do. Um, I wanted to get to, I know that, you know, I read, um, the philosophy and politics interview that you did on the website. And I know that, you know, Adorno and um, Arndt have, have been really important figures for you. And I don't want to, um, to, to go without talking about what I thought was really, I guess, kind of intellectually delightful in a way, which was how you use Beyond to read Adorno. Um, and can you sort of talk about your strategy with that? What what were you trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, I, I, because I start that chapter by talking about the the authoritarian personality, which mm-hmm. I think is a is an important study with lasting validity in a way, and it's also important because it um, tre- treats prejudice as a general phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that someone who's high on sexism would also be high on racism and anti-Semitism, etc. Um, so we have a tendency towards stereotyping and rigidity in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- while also argue, seeing sort of personality as shaped by society, so that it's not just an analysis of individuals, so to say. Even yeah. And I think it's, um, it's a question... The authoritarian personality, for those who aren't familiar, it was essentially um, the result of sociological uh, studies or um, surveys and tests to try to understand whether, correct me if I'm wrong, there Mm. is a a, a type of personality that is more prone to authoritarianism. Yeah, so it started out being mainly focused on anti-Semitism in in 1950, so the Frankfurt School where they moved to America and did these studies. Uh, And then they found sort of links with um, sexism, racism. Um, So so the idea was that, you know, you could have a fascist potential in countries other than Germany, (laughs) so to say, uh, and to examine that potential elsewhere. And so I, I think the idea is ego strength. And what, this is yeah. my, my take on it, but whether a, a person's ego is prone to the kind of frozen, the freezing of thought um, that happens with ideology and authoritarianism. It's, it's a way of stopping thought, I, I think. And 
that's I think that's where you bring beyond in in terms of yeah but because the tensions are because it's also problematic. I think the idea of ego strength would also be problematic to Adorno himself. In right in in that he would have argued that sort of some of these forms of extreme prejudice could precisely be seen as sort of the ego devouring the object, or sort of sort of idealism played out in violence against the object, where. Um, describes in dialectic of enlightenment which are projections upon projections where you don't take anything in mm-hmm. and and he elsewhere also um, emphasizes the capacity to sort of openness towards experience to, to listening to the object mm-hmm. and that's where beyond comes in that I argue that beyond was interested in some of the same Phenomena in the mm-hmm. terms of like a breakdown of thinking and what what it takes for capacity to experience. Um, and, you know, I mean, in a way, you could say that the dialectic of enlightenment. I really appreciated your your writing on this, but there, Adorno's book, The Dialectic of Enlightenment, is really almost you could see it as a critique of ego psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, you know, because as a ten, because I suppose when he did, because also uh, one important thing about the authoritarian personality is that it also made extensive use of, of psychoanalytic thinking. But then that was mostly, I think, ego psychology was what was available to him at the time. Right. So then you also get a yeah, pr- problem arising out of uh, the problem of responsibility. Um, <laughs> well, as ego psychology much more being aligned with an aim of adaptation. Right. And if it's... And that would precisely be problematic in this respect. Right. Um, all right. I, I, we're going to have to um, wind up our the, the show, unfortunately. Um, but I want to say, you know... I'll, the, you know, leave it to the um, to to the listener to get a copy of this book. The final chapter, you talk about the question of responsibility and being responsible as an individual and in within social space. Um, it's a it's a really um, admirable way of closing. Um, I noticed that you start the entire book with, you know reading the definition, the, the OED definition of prejudice and you close it with reading the OED definition of responsibility. Um, and so it's, it's, it was a really, um, moving way to, 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 to close the, uh, the subject. Oh, thank you. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to throw in one more point. Uh, <laughs> you, you talk about the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, in the context of Arndt's The Banality of Evil and the Eichmann Trial, which, you know, listeners, you have to, you have to check it out. It's an amazing um, mashup of concepts and, and thoughts. Um, Lene, can you talk a, just briefly about philosophy, um, psychoanalysis and politics and what's happening with that organization? Um, yeah, I, 
started it in, uh, I think the idea was conceived autumn of 2009, and then the first conference was in 2010, in the spring, and I was in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the, first, the book, uh, Exclusion and the Politics of Representation, that came that book, okay. the first one. And since then, it's been going on, well, every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the conferences in the spring in several different countries in Europe. And so, yeah, the, the next one next year is going to be in Vienna in May. May of 2016, uh-huh. Yeah. So, so I also think it's, um, and, and it's um, interdisciplinary with many di- people coming from many different perceptions, not just... Yeah, not just psychoanalysts, but philosophers, sociologists, um, people from literature, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et <laughs> and um, yeah, so actually, in the way of Arendt, in some ways, it's um, it sort of links with an idea of, sort of creating a space with many different perspectives where you can come together and discuss. Plurality. And also not linking to one particular country or one particular yeah, group having the dominance, but to yeah. I think it's a really yeah, exciting project. Or really listening to others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting project. Um, I'm definitely going to be following it. And I think also the, your book creates its own audience in a way. This book asks the the reader to rise to the occasion of being sort of part of this new way of uh, thinking and reflecting. So I, I really appreciated that. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, well, that's all the time we have. Um, uh, again, I've been talking with Lene Alstad uh, about her book, Respect, Plurality and Prejudice, a psychoanalytical and philosophical inquiry into the dynamics of social exclusion and discrimination, and it's from Karnak 2015. Lene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.